0: You're listening to Matt Walsh on Demand. The Jeff Fisher Show. Feeling old? Well, think about this. Raquel Welch is 74 years old. Harrison Ford, 72. Martin Sheen, 74. Paul McCartney, 72. How you feeling? Feeling better? Thought you were feeling old today. Don't. The Jeff Fisher Show, Saturday morning, 6 to 8 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Matt Walsh Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, uh, giving me your time today. It's, I hope you had a, you've had a good week so far. It's been, it's been kind of a tough week for me, for uh, reasons that I won't get into. Not because they're terribly personal or interesting, but because they aren't. Um, so I've been threatening to talk about this for a while now. And now that with the with the latest news uh, last week, which I'm sure you heard, the Boston bomber, uh, Jahar Sarnayev, was, uh, well, of course, he had already been found guilty, and a, 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 ju- a jury came down with the verdict and decided that he was going to get the death penalty. So um, not that there's anything particular about that case that changes my position on the subject of the death penalty, because, because, of course, that wouldn't make any sense. If you're for the death penalty, then you're going to be for it in the case of, the Boston bomber and if you're against it then you'll be against it because it's just you're either for it or you're against it but that case brought up the subject generally speaking of the death penalty so I thought okay now is finally the time I'm going to stop being a coward um I'll just uh, I'll come out and and explain my position on the death penalty and, and why I'm against it and it's not so much that I'm a coward which is why I haven't really talked about it before but it's it's such a big subject. And uh, I know that when I, when I talk about it or if I write about it, most of the people listening or reading will disagree with me because my audience is generally you know right-wing conservative, and right-wing conservatives tend to be for the death penalty. And so I know that most people will disagree with me. I want to make sure that I really bring it with great arguments. And so it's taken me a long time to kind of put them all together and compile them. Um, and so that's what I'm going to try to do today. If I had talked about this subject of the death penalty at any point, before the last few months, I would have I would have told you it, w- w- it would have been entirely different. The discussion would have been entirely different. I would have told you why the death penalty is right and why it's just. I would have told you that it's an important tool for a civilized society. That it helps deter crime. That it brings closure to the families and the victims, and, and that it, it gives you know these killers what they deserve. Uh, I would have told you all that. I've been I've been saying that myself. I was very ardently pro death penalty for a long time, for my entire life up until just. Very recently. I say my entire life. I'm not going to say I was pro-death penalty when I was like three years old. That would be a little strange to have a three-year-old who's, who feels really strongly about executing criminals. But for as long as I've understood the issues, I, I've been for pr- pr- the death penalty until recently. And I can't say for sure what changed my mind. It, it wasn't an emotional decision. Um, it wasn't even at first intellectual, I don't think. I think it was more in my gut. And there was just something about, something about the thought of taking a guy out of a cage, marching him into a room, strapping him to a gurney, and having these state employees euthanize him. There was something about that that never quite sat right. And it, it didn't quite fit with my general outlook on, on life and morality and the role of government. Uh, it It never quite fit. And so I always had this pang in the back of my head, like, I don't know... You know, I'm I'm making these arguments for it and they seem like good arguments, but I'm not quite buying it. There's a disconnect. So eventually I just, and this is a very scary process, but I decided to entertain the thought that I might be wrong. I'd said so many arguments in favor of the death penalty. And like I said, if this Boston bomber case had happened uh, just very recently, I probably would be doing a podcast telling you, uh, well, thank God he's being executed. You know, here's why, here's why the death penalty is such a great thing. And it's very scary, scary to start to think, well, maybe I'm wrong. And, and to, to, as I said, entertain that thought. Um, instead of debating other people, I started to debate myself about it, which I do frequently with a lot of things. But I was debating myself, and, and after a, a very rigorous and protracted argument, uh, one that, that honestly sometimes did descend into personal attacks and insults, I, I found that myself presented five arguments against myself which myself could not answer. So what I want to try to do is give you those five arguments, the five reasons why I was wrong about the death penalty for a long time. Fully aware that, that most of you will not agree. Um, I'm anticipating the, you know, the avalanche of people saying, oh, I'm disappointed in you, Matt. I can't believe you're a liberal. How could you be so wrong about this? It's the first time we've ever disagreed about something, blah, blah, and so on. So I know that's going to happen. I might even lose some people over this. I, I don't know. But I don't want to just preach to the choir. I want to try to communicate the truth as I see it. And the truth is that I was very wrong about the death penalty, and you might be as well. And I want to give you the five reasons why, in no particular order, because there might be a good order for them, but I just I, I'm I'm kind of going off the top of my head here. So, uh, number one, number one reason why I was wrong about the death penalty is that the death penalty does not deter crime. So you think okay, threaten to kill criminals, and they'll stop being criminals, right? That's, that's kind of what you think. Seems like it makes sense. Threaten to kill somebody for doing something, and they'll stop doing it. The problem is that the facts don't quite line up with that theory. Um, unfortunately, there isn't any credible evidence that the death penalty deters crime, especially because uh, violent crime rates are falling right alongside execution rates, which doesn't really make sense. If the death penalty deters crime, then if you have less death penalty, you should have more crime, right? Stands to reason. Uh, There's a report from from several years ago that that showed that there's actually a lower murder rate in states without the death penalty. And there was a 2008 survey that I saw a long time ago um, that found that about 90% of the nation's leading criminologists believe that the death penalty does not deter crime. There is no deterrence factor. And then you have slightly less strongly worded, but there's a report from the National Research Council uh, that found that the deterrence factor has never been proven or supported. It's been stated, insisted, but nobody's ever proven it. And I get it, you know, yada, 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 data research, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. It doesn't really matter. Both sides can pull out the studies card. In fact, uh, as, a, as a pro-death penalty person, I was always quick to point out that there was uh, also a study done kind of recently by professors at Emory University, and they discovered supposedly that each execution deters 18 murders. That's what they, they, they claim. And I, I really liked that study when I was for the death penalty because it was great for my side, but um, the only problem is that, uh, you know, eventually somebody asked me, well, how precisely... Could these academics have actually quantified the number of hypothetical individuals who didn't do something that they would have done? How can you count the number of people who, because of, of a particular thing, they didn't do something they would have done? How do you count that? Something that didn't happen that, but, but could have potentially happened. How can you count things that never occurred? And That's a very good question. The answer is this. You can as long as it reinforces your opinion. That's the sort of logic that only works when it reinforces what you already believe. But obviously, when looked at objectively, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, I can see how the death penalty might deter crime if we're talking about vandalism or loitering. Uh, You know, if you start executing people for being a nuisance, I I can guarantee there'll be fewer nuisances to deal with. But the really bad guys, okay, the murderers and the rapists and the child killers, these are people who are so utterly consumed with hatred that I don't think any threat of force or death could probably dissuade them. And, and yes, they're often cold, uh, calculating people, but you can rest assured that if the death penalty is literally the only thing stopping a guy from being Charles Manson, that dam will not hold forever. Okay, that's just human nature. And besides, hardened criminals, uh, people that are out on the streets, people that have lived a life of crime, They already exist in a world where death is is pretty much a near certainty. Okay, these people, you've got somebody, you know, a a criminal, a thug in Baltimore. He knows that his lifestyle will probably kill him long before the law catches up to him. And if anything, it actually adds an extra bit of mystique and glory to what he's doing. And I think the reason for that that is that the worst criminals live a life of death. They're surrounded by it. They're consumed by it. They're obsessed with it. So how can we think that more death would somehow actually break through that haze and turn them into respectable citizens? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Number two, the death penalty is not necessary in this country. Now, notice I said in this country. I'm still not against the death penalty uh, capital punishment universally. Because it could, you know, in some countries be be reasonably considered the only way to protect society from dangerous people. So in a a primitive third world nation without the budget or infrastructure uh, to house thousands of violent criminals for life, the death penalty could really be a sort of societal self-defense mechanism. Um, But around here, we don't have that justification available because when we put somebody in prison for life without parole, that's where they stay. Prison escapes are extremely, extremely rare. And when they do happen, they're usually nonviolent offenders who, who, who break out of minimum security prisons and, and that sort of thing. In almost all cases, those people are recaptured. And um, as for the ones who end up in federal supermax prison, none of them have ever escaped. Ever. It's never happened. So when we execute convicts, we are actually, statistically, killing people who pose no reasonable threat to anybody outside of the walls. And then you might ask, well, what about people inside the walls? And for a long time, as I clung uh, for dear life to my pro-death penalty inclinations, I, I finally settled on the idea that abolishing the death penalty would create a chaotic environment in prisons, and, you know, these inmates would have nothing else to lose, and so they would just try to kill each other every day, and it would put other prison inmates and prison guards in, in, uh, in jeopardy. And that's what I said, because it sounded logical, but again, there's a problem with that. It doesn't really hold up under scrutiny. For one thing, the death penalty is illegal in some states, and I'm not aware of any information that says that prison is more dangerous in those states. But besides, prison murder in general is statistically extremely uncommon. The murder of prison guards, I mean, it happens, but it's also very, very uncommon. And when it does happen, there's no correlation actually demonstrating that lifers are more likely to be the culprits. So many times you'll have someone who's not even in prison for life, who wouldn't be eligible for the death penalty, and they're the ones committing the prison murders. Prison is a controlled environment. And it's significantly harder to kill someone even if you wanted to, but you wouldn't want to because the next step is 23-hour lockdown and solitary confinement, which if you listen to people who've been through it, um, it might be a fate that's even worse than death. So this might have something to do with the fact that, uh, or this might be the reason why, Statistically, you're more likely to be killed out on the streets than you are in prison. Number three. This is really important. If you are skeptical of government. You probably shouldn't trust it with the power to kill its own people. Okay. Um, Conservatives love to talk about government abuse and incompetence. It's one of our favorite subjects. Because there's always so much fodder for the conversation, you know. But. Suddenly, after we've just finished pontificating about the dangers of letting government officials run healthcare, care, education, or the DMV, without a hint of irony, we'll suddenly proclaim that this same government should have the power to kill us. Can't trust it with health care. Can't trust it with education. Can trust it with a, with a poison needle. And the hypocrisy gets even worse because conservatives, and I'm one of them, are always fretting that you know the state is uh, one step away from confiscating our guns, arresting political dissidents. Yet again, we valiantly defend the purity of its intentions when it comes to putting down American citizens like dogs. And, and we speak of government tyranny and overreach, but if it were up to many of us, there would be summary ed- ex- executions across the country, which is just kind of weird. Now, look, the government has the power uh, to wage war, although we we know how badly it's abused, but it has to have that power. And cops have to have the power to kill in self-defense, although we know that that can also be abused. But what we've learned is that government, when entrusted with the ability to take life, will abuse it. Will. Not if. Not might. Not could. Will. Therefore, Uh, The rational and consistent and free-thinking conservative person comes to the conclusion that this power, because it's so profound and devastating and so susceptible to exploitation by dishonest and nefarious forces within government, should only be wielded where it is absolutely, provably, practically necessary. And as we've already established, the death penalty is not absolutely, provably, practically necessary. It's just not. Number four, the death penalty is not just. Um, Of course, I I used to shove all these practical concerns aside, and I would simply fall back on one word, which was justice. But we have to ask, what is justice? And death penalty proponents consider it to be a sort of balancing of the scales. You know, they they say you killed, so you die. That's balance. That's justice. Eye for an eye and all that. But it's interesting that they rarely extend this logic to other crimes. You know, after all, if it's, if it's justice to be killed because you killed, then it wouldn't be justice to be raped because you raped or tortured because you tortured or assaulted because you assaulted. Yet despite the venting that you might see in the comment section under a news article, most civilized people don't actually think the official punishment for a rapist should be that he's dragged into a room and sexually violated by state officials. Most don't think that. And why? Because rape is unjust. It's not unjust based on the perceived innocence of the victim. Okay, it's not unjust to rape because the person that you raped was a good person. It's unjust to rape because it's unjust to rape. Because you as an individual should not be raping people. That's why it's unjust. And that individual has the right to not be raped. Rape in and of of itself is an injustice. And the justice system should not do an unjust thing, even to an unjust person. So that's the basic principle here. So you might think that death is due these people, but in fact, the whole reason why we find murder so apprehensible is that it fundamentally denies a human what he's due, which is life. When a person is murdered, um, if it's straight up murder, like, you know, we know that it was murder, it wasn't self-defense, you break into someone's home and shoot them in their face while they're sleeping. We don't usually look at that, the person that was shot in the face and decide whether or not this was an injustice based on you know this person's uh, moral track record, do we? We say it is just intrinsically wrong to break into somebody's house and shoot them in the face because it's murder. You're taking somebody's life, and it's not an act of self-defense, and you're not doing it in order to preserve your own or to preserve your family's life. I think that same uh, standard should be applied... To the state. I guess you should, you should you should maybe sum this up with the old um, two wrongs don't make a right slogan. And it's a cliche, but it's also a fundamental and irrefutable moral principle. And it's, it's one that only moral relativists would deny, which I think is another reason why conservatives should think twice about capital punishment, because it's kind of morally relativistic. It says that murder is immoral based on the morality of the victim. That to me is morally relativistic. Number five, I never figured out a way to be pro-life and pro-death penalty. I just, I couldn't figure it out. Now, granted, it's much more of a conflict to be anti-death penalty and pro-abortion. That makes no sense. And liberals often are, So anytime a liberal brings it up and says, how are you, you know, uh, how can you be pro-life and pro-death penalty? It's easy to flip that around and say, oh, you want me to justify my belief that murderers should be executed, but babies should be saved? Okay, right. Well, I'll do that after you explain why murderers should be saved, but babies should be executed. You explain your part. I'll explain mine. Both positions are flawed, obviously, but the liberal position is just completely depraved. So, fine. I I agree with you there. But... Now that um, you've masterfully deflected the question, you got to tell me, conservative to conservative, how do you justify it? You know, pro lifers defend unborn babies, unborn babies, not on circumstantial grounds, but on the very solid rock of absolute principle. And here, the absolute principle is that life is sacred. And if life is not sacred, then there's no reason to be pro life, is there? If life is not sacred, then I suppose you should be like liberals, pro-life in certain circumstances, which, which isn't nearly as compelling of an argument. But if life is sacred, is, then then life is always sacred, because that's a, a quality that it possesses. You know, does life possess sacredness? Yes or no. Is life a sacred thing? Yes or no. If there's ever a a situation where it can no longer be sacred, then it's never sacred. Because that's the nature of sacredness. If a thing is sacred, then it's sacred. And now sacred is one of those words where you say it enough times and it loses its meaning. Sacred, sacred, sacred. Anyway, um, anyone who is living gets to enjoy protection under this principle. The only time where they forfeit, in some ways, that protection is if they... um, are an imminent threat to you or your loved ones. Or from the state's perspective, a a nation is an an imminent threat to to its people. Uh, In that case, it's not that the live, you know, if somebody's threatening my family, if somebody pulls a gun on my wife and kids, their life is still sacred. But in order to protect my children's life and my family's life, which is also sacred, I must kill this person. The goal, you know, the end is not killing them. The end is protecting. And in order to protect, in this instance, I must kill. But that's not my fault. That's his. You see. So when I say life is sacred, I really mean it's sacred for everyone. I think that's the safest place to be. And that's the only place you can really settle if you claim to be pro-life. It is possible to say, I'm pro-life, life is sacred, but then still support the killing of individuals in certain circumstances, like I said, in self-defense. But I don't see how you could say life is sacred and then support the killing of individuals not in self-defense. Now, those are the the five things, the five reasons I changed my mind. Uh, there there are plenty of others that I could mention. I could have talked about the expense of capital punishment um, With the appeals processes and everything else, you know, the the capital punishment becomes more expensive than putting them in prison. I could have talked about the fact that uh, innocent men have been and will continue to be executed. Uh, I I, I could talk about the fact that the death penalty creates an undue moral burden on prison officials by requiring them to facilitate and carry out murder. I think that's an element of this that isn't discussed very often, but it's important. And these are all fine arguments, but they're not the ones that ultimately change my mind. Now, there's one other point that I didn't include in the list, but I have to address. And that's this. Um, The Bible does not condone the death penalty in modern America. Now, many Christians, far from opposing uh, the murder of prisoners, actually insist that our faith requires the death penalty. And I've heard some tell me that I'm sinful for not supporting it, if you can believe it. And I never, I personally never thought that I had to support the death penalty as a Christian. I thought that I had that option, but I didn't think that I had to. So I don't include this in a a reason that I was wrong, you know, if that's the list. It's not a reason that I was wrong because that's not a position I ever held. But it is a common belief among some strands of the faith. And to justify it, they point primarily to two verses. One is in Exodus and one is in Genesis. And both are Old Testament. Both come from a time when modern prison systems did not exist. And both come from before the birth and resurrection of Christ who fulfilled the old law, as we know as Christians. Um, Genesis 6 says, uh, and it's very clear, it says, Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Sounds pretty conclusive. But keep in mind, this law was passed to Noah at a point when, according to Scripture, there was nobody left on earth save for Noah and his family. So human society at this point had been had been eliminated and there were very few people left and i'm guessing they had not they didn't really have much of a prison system yet set up um and and so obviously they were in a very different situation had someone gone psycho and started murdering people what other option would they have but to execute the rogue party they they would have to do that there wouldn't have been any other way to segregate them and keep everyone else safe okay now in exodus 21 uh, there's also some scenarios where capital punishment should be used. And it's, it's fascinating to me that Christians use this chapter in particular to support modern death penalty practices because Exodus 21.17 actually prescribes death for anyone who curses their mother or father. According to Exodus 21.17, anyone who curses their mother or father should be put to death. Now this, to me, absolutely, unequivocally proves that these rules do not apply to our modern society because if they do then every christian who cites them would have to condone and encourage death for people who dishonor their parents that's honor killings that's what they call in the middle east honor killings so either you argue for honor killings or you accept the fact that not every old testament edict can or should be applied verbatim to our society of course of course and by the way, if we're taking the Old Testament literalist approach, um, you also have to make sure that you stop shaving your beard, wearing clothing of mixed fiber, or eating unclean animals, as Leviticus clearly condemns all of those troubling practices. Now, there are people that say, yeah, you take the Old Testament literally in every single thing that it says you do, but 99% of these people do not follow that because if they did, they'd be living a drastically different life. And it's okay that they don't follow it because we are not meant, and this is very clearly laid out in the New Testament, that we're not meant to follow every single last rule and edict as it's prescribed in the Old Testament. And the one about killing people who, who curse their mother or father is that's definitely one that in America we should not be following. We should not be following that one. Does anyone think that makes us not a Christian nation? Well, we're you know uh, we're not really anymore. But is that the reason why that we're not killing people who dishonor their parents? You know, fortunately, Jesus came and he established the new covenant. And in establishing it, he specifically addressed some of these old laws. And in many cases, he gave us something entirely new. And this is not just a minor detail, but a central tenet of Christianity. So, so shockingly, some Christians um, they support the death penalty even with Exodus 21:24, which is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But they're blatantly ignoring the fact that Christ himself explicitly addressed that way of thinking in Matthew 5 when he said, you've heard it said that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So, so Christ explicitly said, okay, look, I know that's what you were told uh, back in those days, but here's a new way of thinking. Leviticus uh, says that adulterers should be put to death. But Jesus, okay, now this is really important. Leviticus says that adulterers should be put to death. But Jesus physically stopped a mob of people from following that Old Testament teaching. These were people that were following the teaching, and he physically stopped them. And he said, let the one among you without sin cast the first stone. It's a very profound moment, and one that we should not ignore. And that's the New, new Covenant. We're still in it. Unlike the Old Testament, the New, covenant, uh, the new Testament never ended. This doesn't mean that the moral absolutes of the Old Testament don't apply, but it does mean that we can shave, we can wear whatever sort of fabric we want, uh, and we don't have to, or, nor should we, execute people for cursing their mothers or cheating on their spouses, You know, uh, although it's bad to do both things, certainly. Now, I do agree that there's some value. Uh, well, of course, there's value in bringing up what the Old Testament says about capital punishment. There's always value in looking at Scripture, no matter what the issue is. And the fact that it was prescribed in the Old Testament, and it was, the fact that it was prescribed does demonstrate and it shows that the death penalty, as such, looked at you know generally, is not an intrinsically immoral thing, because if it were, then God would have never commanded it. So God could never command something that's intrinsically immoral. So so yes, that is a, it's a good point, one to bring up. You know, generally speaking, which is why I'm saying that there are circumstances, I believe, in uh, modern, the modern world, uh, when I say, you know, there are circumstances currently on the planet where the death penalty could be um, an okay thing, a reasonable thing. But for all the reasons I've just laid out, America is not a circumstance, is not a place where the death penalty um, should exist. And for us in this country... The death penalty in the end is just more death. That's all it really is. Death upon death. Nothing healed. Nothing fixed. Just more bodies in the ground, more tombstones. Um, Just death. That's all. And as Christians and as conservatives, if we stand for anything at all, we should absolutely be standing for life. And I believe that. And, uh, And when it comes down to it, you know, if that's the only reason, then that's it. Is that for me, my stance on life... Is so important that I will not take any position that even that even comes close to jeopardizing it for me. It is an absolute position from, from moment of conception to natural death. I am pro-life and it's so important that I will not take any position at all that might interfere with that or call that into question or ca- or cause me to say, yeah, but because there are no buts. conception until natural death. I'm pro-life. And I think we all should be all right. Uh, That was a heavy subject, but we got through it. I know, you know, a lot of you disagree, but hopefully anyway, I've given you some things to think about. Remember, we're on the same side. I was on your side on this issue for a long time, so I get it. But I'm just being honest with you and revealing, you know, my thought process. And this is where I am right now. And uh, and uh, and there it is. That's my big that's my big finish. That's my that's my closing argument. There it is. And there it is. All right. I will. I hope you have a great week. I'll, I'll talk to you next week. A cruce salus. Godspeed, everybody.